I got a couple of pictures and I want to put these up and I want to ask you if you remember this. First one, this is the J- Japan tsunami in 2011. Anybody remember that? Over 20,000 people died in this tsunami. Next picture, you see them just picking through, just unbelievable. When you read about this, you see the waves that came in and they just took people by surprise. Unbelievable destruction. How many of you remember this one? This is the Indonesia tsunami back um, in 2004, the day after Christmas. I remember sitting there watching on TV, being blown away. Over 200,000 people died in this tsunami. Here's the aftermath. Just when they're picking through, this, this wave was massive. It came out of nowhere after an earthquake. Just a few seconds. I don't remember how long it was, but, but not even enough time for them to have warnings. And people were destroyed because of this. Here's the next picture. How many of you remember what happened on that? September 1st, 2001. I mean, September 11th, 2001. Um, I remember watching that. I remember we were sitting in our house. I was actually reading my Bible and a friend stopped by. We were going to watch her daughter that day, uh, Janie was, and and she said, have you, have you seen the news? And we turned this on and, and, and we watched. In fact, when I went to work that day at the church I was at, we had it on all day and all of us just kind of sat at our desk being blown away by by questions like how, how can a good God allow a tsunami to hit Japan or, or Indonesia and, and thousands of innocent people die? Or, or how can a good God allow a terrorist to fly not one jet, but two into these buildings in New York City and another one went down in Pennsylvania? Um, how can a good God allow that to happen? And see, this is what I hear all the time. I've been in ministry over 30 years, and, and these are the questions I hear. Two main questions. Number one, why do bad things happen to good people? Everybody here has a story. Either it's happened to you or somebody close to you or somebody in your family. Bad stuff just happened to good people. Good, you know, cancer hits or, or a life cut short or a drunk driver, whatever it is, there's something that happened. But there's another question that bothers some people even more than the first question. Why do good things happen to bad people? Does that one bother you more? Um, you know, examples of this where, where somebody has a Ponzi scheme and they, they rip some, some, um, retired woman out of all of her retirement money and, and they maybe get a slap on the wrist and they live with millions of dollars the rest of their lives. Why does that happen? See, bad things happen to good people is not fair. Good things happen to bad people is not fair. So that begs a question. If God created the earth, is God fair? Can we trust his judgments? Um, Let's go back to the beginning. What we're trying to do is figure out in, in the scripture what, how God reveals himself. Genesis tells us that in the beginning, everything was perfect. And then we get to Genesis chapter three and sin enters into the world and it is no longer perfect. We get to Revelation and we find out that in the end, all will be made perfect again. In the meantime, that's those three dots. Perfect in the beginning, perfect at the end. But those three dots, you live in one of those dots, probably the third dot. We're closer to the end times than, than we ever have before. Genesis 3 records something we call the fall. What that means is this is the very first sin. There was a sinless perfection. Sin came into the world and human beings fell from sinlessness to sinful and sin entered the world. So when we talk about the creation and humans being fallen, we're referring to the very first sin that Adam committed. Um, we live in a world that has cancer. We live in a world that has disease. It is not the way God intended because it is fallen. We live in a world that does not reflect the goodness of God and the purity and the holiness of God. Eventually we'll get to revelation chapter 20 and there comes judgment. God takes all the injustice. He takes all the good things that happen to bad people, all the bad things that happen to good people. And he says, I will make it all right. 
But it's not until Genesis, or Revelation chapter 20. And then in, verse 20, in chapter 21, there's a new heaven, there's a new earth, and it's all perfect again. There's no pain, there's no tears, there's no sorrow. Everything is as it should be. But in the meantime, we live in the meantime. So in the beginning, it was perfect, dot, dot, dot. We live in the dots. In the end, it will be perfect again. Now, if you don't believe in God, you actually have a bigger dilemma than those who, of us who believe in God. Here's why. If you don't believe, then you can't hold God responsible for the unfairness in the world. You can't hold someone responsible who doesn't exist. So if you don't believe in God, you got an issue. Those of us who believe in God, we actually have an explanation for why life is so unfair. And here it is. Life will never be fair in a world where sin dominates. We're not talking about one sin. We're talking about Romans 3.23 says all have sinned and we got thousands and thousands of years and hundreds of thousands and millions of people's sins that are compounding the effect on the world. So today we're going to look at the justice of God and we're going to start with a man named Abram. First, he was called Abram, and later his name was changed to Abraham. Abram means exalted father. Later in his life, and we'll talk about that in just a second, God changes his name to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. Now, Abram was 75 years old when God called him, and he said, get up and go to a land I'm going to show you. He was 86 years old whenever he had his first son, Ishmael, with his, with his wife's servant girl named Hagar. This caused all kinds of problems. It was 11 years after God called him. He decides he's going to run ahead of God. He's going to have his own child his own way. And, and there are still problems in the world today because Ishmael was the father of, of all of the Arab nations that are still persecuting the Jews to this day. And in fact, the Muslims will tell you that it was Ishmael who was uh, sacrificed on the altar. When, when Abraham went to sacrifice him and, and God provided the ram, they'll say, no, 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 the temple is a holy place for us because it was Ishmael, but the word of God says, no, 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 it was Isaac. And so the Muslims contradict the word of God and their, their scripture comes hundreds of years after our scripture does. So he was, he was um, 86 when, when Ishmael was born. He was 99 when God gave the covenant to him, changed his name to Abraham and said, oh, by the way, 99-year-old man, next year at this time, you're gonna have a baby boy. Sarah heard this, she laughed, um, Abraham laughs. So they named him Isaac, which means laughter. And this reminded me just a few years ago, I'm 54 years old, I don't remember exactly, but just a few years ago, we thought that Janie was pregnant again. And I said, whether it's a boy or a girl, we're naming that sucker laughter because God's got a sense of humor. She wasn't, but uh, anyway, you understand. This is how we meet, uh, we meet Abraham or Abram in Genesis chapter 12. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And look at this, and all peoples on earth, if you're a believer in Christ or if you've moved towards Jesus at all, this, you're, you're fulfilling this scripture from thousands of years ago. God had to be a sovereign God to make this promise to a man who didn't even have his own child and say, I'm gonna bless all of the nations of earth through you. How did he do that? First of all, through the Jewish people, but then through the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who came eventually from Abraham. Amazing. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. 
Now, when we get to chapter 13, Abraham and his nephew Lot are living close to one another. They're in tents because they're shepherd people. And so their flocks, God has blessed them so much that their flocks are overrunning the land. Their shepherds, their herdsmen are are fighting with each other. No, this grass is for our sheep. No, it's for our sheep. This water's for ours. And they're just having this big fight. So Abram comes to Lot and he goes, hey man, we're, we're close. We don't need to be fighting. He says, if you want to stay here, I'll go over there. And he looks at this big valley going this direction. And, and he says, if you go that direction, I'll stay here. And so Lot looks around and he goes, hey, that looks much better than here. I'm going that way. And, and Abram settled for what we now call the land of Israel. It's where God wanted him the whole time. So he settled for that. Now, I want you to see um, what happens when, when Lot goes towards that other place. So Abram settled in the land of Canaan and Lot moved his tents to a place near Sodom. You've heard of that place and settled among the cities of the plain. But the people of this area were extremely wicked and constantly sinned against the Lord. So Lot lives in a place that God has his hand, he sees all of the wickedness and eventually God says enough. So the Bible tells us that God in the form of a man comes to Abraham. So he looks like a man. He obviously doesn't look like God. He comes to him and, and he asks this really interesting question. God asks himself this question in Genesis chapter 18, verse 17. Shall I hide from Abraham? So this is after he'd changed his name. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? God always tells his people what he's about to do through somebody. God appears to him. He says, hey, Abraham, Sodom and Gomorrah are so wicked that I'm about to destroy them. Abraham says, my, my nephew Lot lives there. I don't want him to die. So he literally begins to negotiate with the God of heaven to try to save Sodom and Gomorrah. Here's what it says in, in verse 25. Then Abraham approached him, God, and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing. This is as close as you can come to cussing in the presence of God, you know, and not be smitten. Smite thee, oh mighty smiter. I don't know. Smite me. I don't know. God forbid that you should do something that's not right. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. There it is. God, God forbid. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And so he says, God, if there are 50 righteous, will you destroy it? And God says, nope, won't destroy it if there are 50 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. He goes down to 45. He goes all the way down to 10. We don't know why he stopped at 10, but God says, if there are 10 righteous people in those cities, I will not destroy it. And we know that he didn't find 10 righteous people. So he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, the Old Testament had not been written yet, which means, but just logically, the New Testament couldn't have been written either. So how did Abraham know anything about God? He knew it by just looking at nature, what God had created, and spending just a little time with God. And he said, wait a minute, I know you're a God of justice. You're a God who does what's right. Now, you and I can know the same things about God just by looking at nature, but we also have the Word of God. And look what the Word of God says about God his righteousness and justice. Psalm 97, two clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. So justice is not just the standard that God follows. He is the standard. If there's any justice, if there's any righteousness in the world, it comes from the throne of God. He is always right. He is always just. Now look what J.I. Packer says in his, in his book, Knowing God. God's work as judge is part of its witness to his character. It shows us also that the heart of the justice which expresses God's nature is retribution. Say retribution. 
We're going to come back to that. The rendering to men what they have deserved. For this is the essence of the judge's task. To reward good with good and evil with evil is natural to God. So when the New Testament speaks of final judgment, say final judgment, it always represents it in terms of retribution. Say retribution. God will judge all men, the Bible says, according to what they have done. So justice means that all people are going to get what they deserve based on God's clear understanding, not only of what they have done, what you have done, but also why you have done it. God knows all of that and he understands it. So what that means is nobody gets a raw deal in God's economy. In between Genesis chapter 3 and Revelation chapter 20, injustice seems to flourish, but God is saying to you, I'm paying attention. Read in the Psalms several times, it says God has his eye on the righteous and the unrighteous. He's paying attention, and eventually he'll make all things right. Okay, that sounds good, so how do we know? How has how God shown us his justice? How do we know he's just? A couple of things. First one is ex- external witness. That means things outside of you. And, and the first place we see this, or where I'm going to show you, is Romans chapter 1, verses 18. And it says this, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. How do they make it plain? For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made. So he's saying creation shows that there is a designer, there is a creator and you can see his majesty when you just realize how big our universe is and then how how many universes there are out there. And then the last verse have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. He's saying, just look at nature. You don't have an excuse. The wrath of God is his righteous anger against evil in the world. And being ignorant of who God is, is no excuse for any man when they stand before God. Now, let me, I'm not going to get on a big high horse, but I'll get on a small high horse, little Sebastian, if you watch Parks and Recreation. Um, Karma is not in the scripture. So I'm just telling you, the next time one of you posts it, I will rip your face off on Facebook if you post about comma, Car- comma, karma. Karma, now this, is, this was developed by people who knew nothing about God and all they did was they started watching how things were going on in their societies. And some injustice would fall on someone unsuspectingly and then you find out later they'd done something wrong and they go, oh, there must be something in the universe that's keeping score and bad people have bad things happen to them. And so then by their own logic, good things happen to good people. You do good things. Karma, that is not of God. It is not in scripture. What God says is you you reap what you sow. That's the biblical thing. But we in the Western world have come up with something called what goes around comes around. And then those of us who are really honest would say, and I sure hope I'm there to see it when it comes around to you, right? We have these issues. From the beginning of time, things out in nature, there just seems to be these rules, these laws. There's certain, there's certain things that are just wrong and there's certain things that are right. People from the beginning of time, any, any society had said it's wrong to kill, it's wrong to have another man's wife, it's wrong to steal. Just, just things in nature seem to, to be evidence of that. Second thing is we call an internal witness. That means what's inside, your heart, your conscience. 
And look what this says. Even Gentiles, this is in Romans 2.14. Gentiles is anyone who's not a Jew. Jews should know better because they've had the word of God. But this says, even Gentiles who do not have God's written law, the word of God, show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. And this is the message I proclaim, that the day is coming when God, through Christ Jesus, will judge everyone's secret life. That ought to cause you to go, oh, no. No, not just my public life. He's even going to judge my secret life. And all people from all societies, even folks who've never heard a thou shalt not from God, have this internal law that tells them right from wrong. It's called conscience. And even if their conscience is seared because they've been bad for so long, there's a conscience there. Now, let me give you an example from the scripture. Acts chapter 28. Paul is a prisoner. He's, he's been arrested because he's preaching Christ in Jerusalem. They were going to kill him, so he appeals to Caesar. He's on a ship going to Rome where he's going to have a trial before Caesar. And so he's being guarded. He's in chains. Roman soldiers have him. They're on this ship. He had a dream in the night saying, we're going to have a wreck. You should not go, but they didn't listen to him. The shipwreck is completely, the ship is completely destroyed. So bad that the night before he said, by the way, some of you are going to need to get on pieces of wood and paddle to shore. That's how bad this wreck is going to be. Sure enough, it happens. They get to shore on this island and they begin gathering firewood because it's cold and they're going to start a fire and all of the natives on the island are watching to see what's going to happen this is acts 28 beginning in verse 3 Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper driven out by the heat fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer, for though he escaped the sea, justice, they thought justice was a person that would come find you if you did something wrong. Justice has not allowed him to live. Where'd they get this idea? The external witness of just watching what goes on in nature and this internal witness of conscience. They thought if justice went to that much trouble to get Paul, he must have done something really, really bad. Verse 5, Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up and suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and they said, he must be a god. Their first thought was bad things happen to bad people. He must be really bad because something really bad happened to him. There's just this idea that you get what you deserve in life and he's getting something bad. Justice came after him. But when nothing happened, they said, he must be a God. He is so good, so powerful that he can't be from this world. He must come from another world to visit our world. It's just this idea of, of how the universe works. C.S. Lewis, been quoting him a lot. He, he said something in Mere Christianity. Um, he was, an, he was an agnostic slash atheist who became a Christian because of this external witness we've been talking about and this internal witness that we've been talking about. Here's what he says. My argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust, but how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. You, you understand what he's saying? There's got to be a standard. You can't call the world unfair and unjust unless there is someone who is just and fair. What was I comparing the universe with when I called it unjust? If there really is good and bad, the standard must have come from somewhere. And C.S. Lewis said, there must be a creator who designed our universe and these people to be this way. And it led him to becoming a Christian. External, internal. Third way that we can know God is just. He's the judge of all. I've got to fly through this. We'll talk more about this in small groups. 
Hebrews 12, 23, you have come to the assembly of God's firstborn children whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God himself who is the judge over all things. Just remember that he's the judge over all things is what the scripture says. You've come to the spirits of the righteous ones in heaven who have now been made perfect. So there's righteousness in heaven. Um, We'll talk about that. Now, Paul was coming to the last days of his life and he writes a letter to a young pastor named Timothy. And here's what he says to Timothy. Now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. He says, there is a righteous judge who makes a way for unrighteous people like you and me to go to heaven. And we get a prize if we follow him. How many of you want a prize? My kids used to say that every time we went into Walmart, can we get a prize? It's not a prize. Anyway, you get a prize if you follow God. That's pretty cool. Fourth way that he shows he's just is the cross. This is big. This is very, very big. Romans 3, 25 and 26. By the way, this comes right after Romans 3, 23, which you've heard. For all have sinned and fall fall short of the glory of God. Look what he says in verse 25. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. So this really means atonement for sin. So say that word, atonement. Atonement means something has been paid for. When he's the atonement, Jesus pays for your sins. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. So if somebody teaches that God, that Jesus didn't sacrifice his life, that he didn't die on a cross, that is not the true scripture. That is a false belief. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past, for he was looking ahead and including them in what um, he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. It's not enough to believe in Jesus, you have to receive. The demons believe, and the Bible says they're going to be cast into the lake of fire. They will not be in heaven. You have to believe it and receive it. So the problem of sin was atoned for or it was covered by Jesus Christ. God did that to make a point about something, his justice. He takes it very seriously. See, God loved us and wanted to uh, rescue us. So how could a God of love and a God of justice do that at the same time? How could it be God of love and a God of justice at the same time? The answer is the cross. The cross was God's justice in action. God hates sin, hates it. Because it destroys individuals, it destroys relationships, it causes people to make all kinds of horrible decisions like abuse and, and, and drugs and alcohol and theft and, and just all of these things, murders, that's what sin. So God hates this, how's he going to pay for it? He has to come and pay for it himself. The only solution for him to be a just God and a loving God was to send his own son to be the perfect sacrifice on the cross. And, and when, he, when Jesus was hanging there and when he said, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? It was at that moment Jesus, God turned away because the wrath, his righteous anger was poured out on Jesus as the payment, the atonement for your sin and for mine. And if you accept that, receive that, you're justified. Somebody said it's justified means just as if I'd never sinned. In God's eyes. Now, if you don't understand the grace of God and the justice of God, you tend to think that God grades on the curve. When I was in, uh, when I went to Baylor, um, I was going to be an electrical engineer. Even though I told my church I was going to be a minister, I go and I signed up for the electrical engineering department and chemistry and calculus determined in my mind that I was not going to be an electrical engineer. Um, My chemistry professor 
historically flunked over half of his class. And eventually, after um, I got out of, seminary, uh, out of college, they fired him because they said, if hundreds and hundreds of students are flunking your class, maybe the problem is you and not the students that we're bringing in. But anyway, this guy was just crazy hard. And I would, I would write down notes. I would write down everything he said. I would read the book and then I would go. So class average was a 52 and my average was a 56. So I'm like, well, I'm better than half of these losers, right? You know, but still, if it, it, that's going to take one heck of a curve. The problem was there was this Vietnamese guy named Ka Vo, K-A-V-O. And he was brilliant and he always scored a 98. And so the professor would say, Ka Vo got a 98. And everybody would go, ah, Ka Vo. Super nice guy. And li- in fact, he lived in my dorm and I started studying with him. And we would be studying and he'd go, well, here's the answer. And I go, dude, it's not in my notes. It's not in the book. How did you get that? And he goes, how did you not get that? I learned in high school. And I'm like, well, my high school sucked. That's my only explanation. Can't be. He's like, this is elementary. I can't, I can't do a Vietnamese accent. So sorry. This, how do you not know this? Stupid curve buster. Here's the deal. Call made a 98 in God's economy, that's failing. Perfection is what gets you into heaven. Not missing one answer, not missing two answers, not having a 56 or a 52. Perfection or you're out. That's why we need a savior. And what God's justice demanded, his love provided. Billy Graham says this, the Lord is not only tender and merciful and full of compassion, but he is also the God of justice, holiness, and wrath. Compassion is not complete in itself, but must be accompanied by inflexible justice and wrath against sin and a desire for holiness. This, this, these next two lines slap me. What stirs God most is not physical suffering, but sin. Physical suffering is, is temporary. You, you live in one of those dots, dot, 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 you live in one of those and God says, I'm not so worried about your physical suffering, even your emotional suffering, because that's temporary. It's in the dot. But the effects of sin last forever. They're eternal. So God's more interested in what lasts forever, not what's temporary. This next one slapped me too. All too often, we are more afraid of physical pain than moral wrong. Ow. The cross is the standing evidence of the fact that holiness or justice is a principle for which God would die. He's so serious about justice. He's so serious about holiness that he will die. God cannot clear the guilty until atonement, there's that word again, payment is made. Mercy is what we need, and that is what we receive at the foot of the cross. If you want to know God's love, we're going to talk about God's love next week. You want to know that his love, it's it's evidenced by the extraordinary lengths he went to pay for your sin and mine. Now this last one. How can we know God is just? His promise of eternal retribution. Retribution means you get what you deserve. And here's the deal. Okay, write that down and then you got to look up here. Both Christians and non-Christians will face retribution, but it will be very, very different. And I'm going to show you the difference. First, I'm going to read for you what believers, Christians will go through uh, in their retribution. 1 Corinthians 3.10, because of God's grace to me, I've laid the foundation like an expert builder. Now others are building on it, but whoever is building on this foundation must be very careful for no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, which is Jesus Christ. He said, you got to be real careful. 
Only the people who build a foundation that say Jesus Christ is God, he came from heaven, he he lived a perfect life, he died on a cross as payment, atonement for your sins, he was laid in a grave, he was raised from the dead, and he's going to come back again. That's the foundation that was laid. Any religion that teaches anything other than that is a false religion. So Paul says, can't teach anything other than that, Jesus Christ. Anyone who builds on that foundation of Jesus Christ may use a variety of materials. He's saying the way you build a church, as long as your foundation is solid, you get a choice. You can use gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. But on judgment day, you got to say that, say judgment day. On judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done, what each Christian has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a prize. If what you've done for Christ survives the fire, you get a prize. But look what he says. If the work survives, that builder gets a prize. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer a great loss. No prize. Now, here's the good news if you don't get prizes. The builder will be saved. The Christian, Christ follower, will be saved. So you won't be thrown into hell, but you also won't get the prize. It'll be like someone who's barely escaping through the walls, the wall of flames. So, yay, I'm in heaven. Uh I didn't build very well. See, there's coming a day that you'll give an account for your life. I will too. And do you think that someone who lives for Christ, who's passionately pursuing a radical relationship with Christ, and they use all of their time, not all, but they use their time and their talents and a good portion of their money to build the kingdom of God, do you think that person will be treated equally with someone who doesn't pursue God passionately? Not a chance. There's no justice in that. What you do on earth will determine what you do in eternity. When gold and silver and precious stones are exposed to the flames, they actually become more valuable because all the impurities bubble out. What happens when wood, hay, and straw are exposed to a flame? What is left over? It's destroyed. There is no value. There will be fire on judgment day. Judgment day is different than what we're going to look at in a second. And it will test everything a Christian, a believer has done in this life. And if you're a member of God's family, you're not going to lose your salvation. You may lose your prize because the fire is going to reveal what you did for you and what you did for God, and you get a prize based on only the things you did for God. Now, that's believers. Retribution also applies to unbelievers, to the lost, but in a very different way. Look at Hebrews 9.27. It is appointed for men to die how many times? Let me ask that again. It is appointed for men to die how many times? Once. And after this comes judgment. Any religion that talks about reincarnation directly contradicts the revealed word of God. You die one time, you will face some type of judgment. Believers go to the judgment seat of Christ. Unbelievers go to something called the great white throne of judgment. Believers don't go there. Different kind of judgment. The great white throne of judgment, it says that Jesus has this book and it's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And it says that he comes out so unbelievers will be before the great white throne. And it says that if anyone's name was not found written in the Lamb's Book of Life, Jesus, the only one that has it, can open it. If their name was not found written, means they, meaning they've not been adopted into God's family, they were thrown into the lake of fire. Depart from me, I don't know you. You're not in here. Now, let me say this. Hell is the clearest evidence that God is serious about preserving the freedom of human choice. God so honors the dignity of people's choices that he's created a place where people who, who don't want to be around him get to not be around him forever. It's their choice. Everyone will not be in heaven, no justice in that. 
And, and you know what you're going to get when your day comes? You're going to get exactly what you deserve unless you have had someone atone for, pay for your sins, Jesus Christ. Believers, we get what Jesus deserved. Unbelievers, you get exactly what you deserve. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, there's only two kinds of people on the planet that live on this planet. The first people are those who say to God, your will be done. So you don't get into heaven because you're a good person. You don't get into heaven based on a curve. Only the people that'll be in heaven are those who have bowed to God and said, God, I'm a sinner. I need you. Whatever you say, I'll do. They say to God, your will be done. Those are the only people who will be in heaven. Now, there's another type of person here on earth, and it's the type of person to whom God says, your will be done. Now, these are the people that said, God, I don't want you. See, hell was created for people who can't stand the thought of spending any time with God. And, and I hear this question, number one question I hear, how can a good God send anyone to hell? A good God doesn't. A good God sent his son to provide a way for people to get to heaven. The only people in hell are the ones who said, God, I don't want your will. I don't want your son. And God says to them, your will be done forever. You don't want to be in that crowd. And you don't want, you don't want justice. You don't want fair when it comes to your sin. What you need is grace and mercy and that's what you get at the foot of the cross. So would you bow your heads for just a moment? Some of you have never, never realized this, that the way you've been treating God is saying, I want my will to be done and God's gonna say, okay, I'm gonna honor your choice. Some of you haven't realized that till right now. And so some of you need to just, just say, God, I recognize for the first time, just quietly where you're sitting, God, I recognize for the first time that I am a sinner and I have turned my back on you. And I need you in my life. And, and, and if you've turned away from God, if you're one of his children who's kind of been the prodigal child and you need to come back, just anybody, whether you're a Christian or not, who is willing right there in your, where you're sitting, would you say to God, your will be done in my life. Would you just pray that silently? Father, I pray that we would understand that you take justice very seriously. Justice is something for which you died. And so we need to take it seriously as well. Raise us up to be a, a generation who seeks your face. Our, our hands are not stained by idols or, or false gods, but we're a generation who seeks your face. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.